All right, we're here for another Smith Sense podcast, and I'm with my business partner and friend, Gary Young, to discuss a topic that I think is very interesting with regard to sales and leadership and not being brainwashed and all kinds of other stuff. But the idea is frame. And this term is used by other people, I think, in the same respect, but we'll go through what it really means and, and why it's really important. But an old mentor of mine, Mark Ford, said to me a long time ago, talking when we were discussing hiring, Mark said, you know, mostly I don't really care about most of these things, but I really want people who have a point of view. I'm introducing that antidote with the, the idea of frame because I think that that's fundamentally what having a, a strong frame really is, is that you've got a point of view on the world. So enjoy. Thank you. What do you think? Why does frame matter? Why don't we start with what frame is, right? Frame is the part worldview, part identity, part posture. It's like one of those things that it's hard to define, but it's not that hard to explain, right? So I don't, I don't have a super pithy way to say what frame is, but frame is from what position you're coming at the world from, you know, as some like hypothetical examples, different frames, right? So when the Pope walks into the room, a room full of the faithful, he's got one frame, right? And when um, somebody is walking into the prison cafeteria or something, they have a totally different frame on their first day in prison, right? Those are way more environmental because frame, you could have a really strong frame in situations where most people wouldn't, right? And that's really the, the powerful and portable aspects of it. But it gives you a sense of like, this is who I am and this is my posture towards the world. But I think in our prior discussions about this, one of the key things we talk about is that it just seems there's a deep lacking of frame most people have. They're just, they operate in most things without, really without that at all, or a version of it that's so paper thin, it's like it could just be, could be bowled over with a strong gust. Yeah. It's one of those things that like most people haven't really thought about the situation that they're currently in before they're in it, right? Which makes it hard to have frame. And then they don't think about what they want, what their desired outcome is, right? Those are two of the sort of pretty easy ways to have some sense of frame where it's just like, okay, I'm going into this situation. I'm going into this first date. What is my posture towards this? What do I want out of the next hour, right? Or I'm going into the sales call. What do I want? What are my objectives? Right. And someone with a strong frame, they look to the outside as someone who is, is confident. Yep. There's no like arrogance, there's no boastfulness, there's none of that. It's just like there's a sense of, you know, there's a sense of confidence. And I think a lot of people look at that confidence and they go, well, that's, um, they see that as, as useful. They see like that confidence as strength. And so people often like will kind of build up a fake version of that, you know, thinking that that's the answer to like the key is that they're just confident about stuff. But really a good frame comes from almost like an intellectual underpinning of things. Like it's like the surface that you might see might come off as like calm confidence, but like, layers deep it's because like i'm confident because of this because of that because i'm certain about this i know how i feel about that i know that this is good and that's bad i'm not relying on other parties to keep that frame together you know what i mean mm -hmm. i know we've talked to, i think at least once or twice about this guy that renee gerard and the whole mimetic theory thing yep can you explain that so renee gerard's mimetic theory is basically that most of history and most of human conflict can be explained by people wanting effectively the same things and just copying one another, right? And 
it makes resources very scarce if everyone wants exactly the same thing. And um, his argument is there's a lot to it, and I'm not definitely not an expert, but like social life is mimicry, basically. So fundamentally, the the default, if not the primary, certainly the default way that humans ascribe value to to things, whether they determine what truth is, what's good or bad, they look to the people around them to what they think. And then if they, based upon what they think, they adjust what they think, you know, they adjust point of view to it. So you can see where I'm going with this mimetic theory, um, you know, how it really intersects with frame and how frame can be an incredibly powerful, persuasive tool if it's built on something real. You have to assume that it's definitely true. And you can see this. Most people don't have really strong beliefs about anything. Or as Mark Ford said, they don't have a strong point of view about anything. No. They're gauging the temperature of the room constantly trying to go, is this good or is that good? You know, and trying to make adjustments along the way, which is why you see these pack mentalities and, you know, why the basic political ideologies in the United States are, you know, Republican and Democrat. Like, how is that even possible? Yeah. It's only possible in a world where we copy one another. Mm-hmm. It's dangerous because you will notice in yourself this desire to be pulled toward other people. You can rewire your whole sense of what's valuable if you're around people who don't value what you do at all. At, you know, they instead they value other things. You can switch to that. Yep. Let's talk about frame as it applies to sales. Because I think this is probably where it's come up, where we've seen it come up time after time again. Yeah. Yeah. So a lot of salespeople, it's very easy for them to lose confidence in themselves or in the product they're selling. And the emotional state of a salesperson is often a sine wave, right? Vacillating between almost irrational euphoria. And that comes from not having this strong internalized sense of the thing that you are selling is valuable and is valuable for this person, right, that you're talking to. And sometimes you go into calls and it turns out that the thing you have isn't actually valuable for them, right? What do you do if you have strong frame and that's true? This isn't the right thing for you. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Maybe I know something that might be more appropriate and I'll introduce you to them. Right. Or maybe at some point in the future, this might make sense, in which case I'd love to talk. But yep. clearly, it's not right for you right now. Exactly. And so if you go into it and you don't have an independent belief that the thing you're selling is valuable, you're never going to be very good at selling anything. What I've always found super curious is, is you know, this potential customer who doesn't really know anything about your product, right, is often going to initially tell you, oh, that's just not for me. And salespeople a lot of times are just like, oh, okay. Yeah, I guess not. And that's weird because they don't know shit about what you're selling yet. And you've accepted their frame. Right. It's a fundamental flaw. Uh, maybe it's an it's overall evolutionary advantage, this mimetic tendency. Maybe it's good for evolution on the whole. But it seems like a, a fundamental flaw in humans that if that we look so much to others for how we should feel about what we everything about ourselves and our point of view, I mean everything, you know, what we value, everything. Even when there's something we have strong knowledge on, if we encounter somebody who just doesn't understand what we're talking about, and so they are confident because there's a misunderstanding, yep. then we see that confidence and we immediately go, well, they're probably right. Well, there probably really is no way we can help them. Yep. You know, and, so, and so that's what salespeople just get bowled over. And then it just and it reinforces, then they start to adopt over time more and more of this attitude with more people who had stronger, uninformed frames. They start to adopt that as their own. It's like, maybe, you know, maybe what I have isn't very good. Yeah, you can start off really believing in what you do, and then end up, you know, thinking that you can't solve a problem no matter what. You know, thinking that the competition is better all the time. Yeah, 
It's this absurd thing. It happens all the time. And I think it's just a human human tendency. And I think one of the ways that salespeople can, can combat it is that like a good prosecutor, almost you build the case in advance of the sales call, you know, and you do your research, you know, the facts and you understand, you know, you understand your product. Well, you understand their situation as well as you can before you get on the, in the sales call with them. And you build a case, you have confidence about your frame going into it. And when they say, well, you know, this doesn't sound like it's for me. And you go, well, you know, you could totally be right. Cause this isn't right for everybody, but do you mind if I ask you a question? And then you ask them a question that just opens up to helps you understand where there might be a misunderstanding. Yep, exactly. With that calm confidence, asking that question, admitting that it's quite possible we can't help them, but we, you know, it has worked for a lot of other people. Then, you know, they start to see the strength of your own frame and they start to see the weakness of their own because they don't have enough information. They don't know enough to have a strong frame. By making it clear to the parties involved in the conversation that one has a stronger frame than the other, people naturally move over to your side. It's not even, you don't have to convince anyone of anything. You just have to show them what you've got and show them what they've got. Well, I think too, the, um, the preparation beforehand and understanding, or at least having a, a working theory of where they're at, right? what you have, arming yourself with the knowledge before you get on that call, that's good to have. But in reality, the bigger benefit is the confidence and the frame. Like, look, you know, two of us, you may disagree. Did you do any of your homework? No, you didn't do any of your homework. I did all my homework. Let's talk about this because I actually have done this before. And maybe we should think about it a little bit together. Reminding yourself that you know what you're talking about. Showing up for the call prepared. Yep. You know, showing, having spent some time out, not being rushed, not being late, not doing it in a place where you're not prepared. You know, all of that just makes it so that you are, you weaken yourself unnaturally to be bowled over by somebody who has strong confidence. And, I, you know, it's a strong sense of frame. But again, you can have frame because you think you know something that you don't understand. Like, and that's often what it is. I mean, most of the time where you encounter somebody where they're like at loggerheads on something, it's because they're talking about different things. People think, right? that people that are good at sales, right? So it's like, if you have a kid who's like 17, 18 years old, that is like um, really extroverted, gregarious, can talk to anybody, right? But you should go into sales. It's like almost all of the really good salespeople I've ever met are way more disagreeable than most natural extroverts are, right? And I would say just introverted more. They yeah. tend to be more introverted. And a lot of that, I think, is because they are naturally not looking to the outside world. Like they, they have a little um, advantage, I guess, in not being subsumed by the yeah. dynamic theory. Your natural extrovert, right, is going to seem like initially they have a stronger frame, but in reality, they're feeding off other people. And it's quite difficult to feed off other people if you're publicly just disagreeing with them and arguing with them, right? That's a really good point. I think, you know, and so in sales, clearly it helps. I mean, I think one of the core thing about that I wanted to, hopefully help people understand about frame is that there's a vehicle of influence. You are influenced by it. Mm -hmm. If you find yourself being like really falling for somebody, like really falling, like believing what they're saying or changing your views on something or just really liking them even, like you, you'll notice that if you could put it in this context of frame, it will make a ton of sense to you. You know, that you're basically, yours is weaker, so you're adopting theirs. Yep. When faced with a strong frame, we adopt it. Yeah, we don't fight it in sales. I think it's pretty clear as a, as a tool of influence, you know. But it, there's lots of other ways that it impacts your life, right? There's other ways that you can use it. So, what are some ways that you you think are worthy of sharing here? 
I think when it comes to frame, right, you are presenting in a subtle way that is just sort of like your fish swimming in water, what your worldview is, your identity is, what your life is like, right, to some extent. And so, you know, one of the things with, say, dating, for example, right, is like, you're on a date, and you and the other person are evaluating, like, okay, do I like this person? You know, can I talk to them? Everything else. But the other thing that you're really looking at is like, is this person someone that will fit into my world? Or do I have to fit into theirs? Yeah. Or do I want to fit into theirs or have to fit into theirs? Right. And it's interesting because like, there's a lot of lonely guys out there that are like, you know, I got to figure out exactly the right thing to say. And like, what do I do? And then like the, the standard advice is like, be yourself. Problem is most people are like mimetic creatures and right. should not be themselves because they're boring. So basically it's like, well, if you do interesting things that you care about and then you just tell people what those interesting things are, that's like 80% of dating. That's like an example of, of your frames. Like your frame is made up of all, all sorts of things, right? At its cheapest, your frame could be like you standing in front of a mirror telling yourself affirmations, which is one approach. Might work, might not. But then in, in reality, your frame is like remembering your victories, the things that you survived, the things that you know, and just not forgetting those and being willing if somebody disagrees. Well, you know, like I have this different lived experience and I'll tell you about it. And all you have to do is you you don't even fight it head on. You say, oh, that's interesting because I had a different experience. Then you just tell them it. And then by the end of it, whatever that worldview is, you've just implanted it in their mind, right? Right. Well, and and also I think when you have two people that have the encounter show that have strong frames, you'll find that those people, if they're especially if they are legitimately strong frames, like they're, they have deep roots. Yeah. They don't have any problem with each other. It's surprising. They can differ on things so fundamentally, but they are totally fine with the, uh, it does not threaten them in any way no. that the other person thinks something different because my frame, it doesn't hurt me. Like yeah. I, I'm confident in the, what this is. It doesn't bother me. And so you can find people that are very disagreeable and disagree on a lot. You can be, get along fantastically well, yeah. you know, because they both have strong frames. It's when you encounter like a stronger and a weaker frame where you tend to find more of that conflict because it's like if someone's saying something that you don't, that you disagree with, but you dis- but your frame is built uh, out of sand, you know, then it, um, it feels like every time they open their mouth, it's washing it away and making you weaker. And it is. Yeah. It is making you weaker. And eventually it'll get subsumed by a stronger frame. If you stay with it, it will because you'll, you just can't deny it. Yeah. You know, and they, when you talk about the, even, you know, the, reminding yourself of, you know, who you are, where you stand. I think that, that just like we talked about that exercise of prep before a sales meeting, you know, it's just, it's that same kind of thing. Yeah. Like it is, it's a human thing that you can lose frame, especially if you're going into an unusual scenario or a high stakes scenario. You think of like a really important sale. That's why that prep, having your stuff together, like having done your homework, having done the math, you know, having lots of examples that you could present the you know, the person you're selling to with proving, you know, you, you can prove it. It helps get your mind in the right frame it needs to be. And if you don't do that, those things, then you're, it's easy to fall out of it. Over time, some things like root things, you can fully incorporate and can be habitual. And I think usually those things are like at the moral philosophy level, you know, 
And, and a lot of people actually, I feel like, don't even have don't have a strong moral philosophy either. And so it makes it really, really hard if you don't if you don't even have those fundamental roots about what's good. If you don't know really what's good, memetic theory is going to just drive you mad. You know, just you'll be chasing shiny objects everywhere you go. Yeah, yeah. One, it's and it's easy too because like most of the time with folks that have really most of the time you don't have really strong moral beliefs without a strong frame, right? So. If you don't have one of your own, you will end up having one. It can be good, can be bad, depending on how old you are and everything else. But like, it's easy to just sort of get subsumed. And I think you know we, we're in a we're in a state of mania in the United States right now. Yeah. From a political standpoint, from just division, and it seems like people are subsumed. Yeah. Because there are a couple of frames, and it's so easy to get. I mean, if you saw, you can see these performative examples you know, the people are adopting and being compliant with certain frames of thinking. And, and, and the people, the rare independent thinker is, well, it's with the rare. I posted something on Twitter the other day. There was a, and I'm sure you saw this picture of this girl as a soccer team and everyone, all our person on our team, they're all kneeling for the national anthem and she is standing. And then they had, they show a split screen, basically a guy at a Nazi rally where everyone's doing the Sieg Heil thing. And this other one guy's got his arms crossed like, nope. What I was saying is I said, you know, it's so rare. It's people don't understand the kind of courage it takes to be that one person who's saying, no, 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 no. I'm not going to do it. Just because everyone else is doing it, I'm not going to do it. Because my frame is strong enough. I know this isn't right. And I would say that applies to Kaepernick too. When everybody gave him a bunch of crap, you know, when he was kneeling and no one else would do it. Like that takes courage. Like whether you agree with it or not, you've got to respect anyone who can stand outside of the crowd with strong frame. I think those are two public examples we saw of it recently. Yeah, very much so. To kneel or not to kneel. And you know, at different points in time, it requires courage. Exactly. But look, if you look to the crowd and everyone else is doing it, and you go, well, this is a good idea, then you know that you, are, you have a weak frame. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and the thing is, right, one way to have a strong frame, right, is because the part that, that gets you is when you're just not even thinking about it and you just do it. Right. And it's just like, well, wait a second, why on earth am I doing this? And if you can kind of interrupt yourself from just following the mob and say, is this something that I, I think I should do or not do? That's a path to it, right? Because like half the battle is noticing. I also think that, you, you know, you really got to go to, to your, some roots. If you have, like, we talked about moral philosophy just briefly. And I think that if you have your own personal moral philosophy, then while you will encounter situations that are unexpected, there will be something inside of you that will be like, this doesn't feel right. I, don't, I can't even articulate it, but there's, this is not good what's happening right now. The inner voice starts to speak up, but I don't think it's there unless you've really figured out your own moral philosophy. And I guess just at the sake of going down this road just a little bit, it's worth describing. There's like three basic views of moral philosophy. There's three fundamental views on it. And one is that... Um, you know, that uh, it's a utilitarian view, which is that the outcome is what matters. So it's not that the act, the act itself, the action isn't necessarily good or bad, like kneeling or not kneeling. One is not innately good. The outcome, the results, so that's a utilitarian view. So it's like the end justifies the means. You know, that's a workable moral philosophy. Honestly, I think it's, you can get yourself twisted into knots with that, that utilitarian approach, but it can work. You also have this, um, you know, that it's the action that matters. So the good is not in the outcome. The good is in the action. So the good is in the 
It's like uh, thou shalt not kill. I mean, all religions, all like all religions are founded on this. Here are the rules, you know, engage in these rules. And, you know, sometimes like thou shalt not kill to true believers would be like, it's always all the time. It's turn the other cheek when you get smacked. I mean, that's what Jesus would do. So it's in the action. The good is in the action. So there's the good is in the action. There's the good that's in the outcome. And then there's the good that is in the intent. Okay. It's a virtue-based moral philosophy. Instead, it's like, it doesn't matter. The actions, it's not fixed. The outcome's not fixed. But the part that's fixed, the good part, is the part of the why I'm doing what I'm doing, why I'm trying to do what I'm doing. So like a lying could be bad, you know, uh, you know, just in general, lying is, I think is, you know, not good. But if, uh, if you got Anne Frank in the attic yeah, and, you know, Nazi patrols come around, then I think lying is definitely good. And so you could say that's a utilitarian approach to it, but I think also the value of preserving the human life, you know, I mean, it could be the, it's the intent of it. It's as long as you are staying true to those to virtues, which you have deemed are of, they are the good. So behaving, conducting yourself from this is where the good is, then it becomes a lot easier. We don't teach these basic moral philosophies. And most, so most people operate on a, like a pseudo-utilitarian basis. But it leaves people desperately, I think, unhappy because they don't even feel good about what they're doing necessarily. You know what I mean? I'm, I'm a virtue-based guy. I believe in that approach. So I think the only way you can find happiness, because you can't control the outcome, and uh, deeds themselves are not necessarily good. So I think people are unhappy without it. But if you have that, if you build from that ground up, you know, so you know how you're going to conduct yourself, the type of human you want to be in the world, you can recognize when you're falling short of it and you can make adjustments and you will make, you will fall short of it. But then, you know, then in every other activity you're engaging in in life, you do these, you basically build the foundations around it so that you, your frame becomes very, very strong over time and people like become way less bothered by anybody. People naturally want to come to your side. They follow you places. I mean, it just sort of happens as you build up your frame and the sales becomes really easy because you know, if something's right for your customer, they come to see it. If it's not right for them, the last thing you want them to do is to buy it. Then they feel that out very quickly. And uh, it, it like makes them somehow more interested in your product to begin with. Yeah, no, it's true. I mean, it's like um, the virtue-based, you know, the three different moral approaches, right? It's like if you've got any friends that follow really strict diets, Right. At first, when they start doing the diet, everyone's like, well, you know, I know you said you're a vegetarian, but like this bacon's really good. Do you want some? And then eventually, if they have a pretty strong frame, you don't even ask them anymore. Right. You're like, oh, you're coming over. Okay, I'll get some right. burgers or whatever. And, and it's like, it's a sort of a superficial example, but it is like an example of a frame over time. It goes like, you know, Craig Ballantyne's rules thing. Like it doesn't, you got to have these rules for what you will do and what you won't do. And I mean, while those are sort of a layer on, certainly on top of, these are, these are different things for the most part beyond like the, the moral virtues, but they make it a lot easier to operate in life. And they do persuade people. Like when you have that strength of like, no, I don't do that. People are like, what, you never drink? No, I don't drink. It doesn't even make sense to people when you encounter somebody who is, is firm in one way or the other. And then there's this, a brief frame battle. Well, what do you mean? Right. I don't do that. It's like, no, I just, I don't. Especially when they're like, well, not, it's just not for me. And they're not trying to convince you. No, exactly. Because again, they aren't trying to sell you. You're certain in your frame, you don't feel the need to sell anyone else on it. And that automatically sells people on it, strangely enough. Exactly. Well, well why don't you drink anymore? And then it's like, well, I just, you know, I don't like it. Well, there's got to be some other, you know, and all those sorts of things. like. It's an example of frame. 
the thing is, right, every January, there's like millions and millions of Americans, right, that come up with a list of rules for themselves when it comes to eating, for example, or exercising. But in reality, like, why don't people have moral rules for their, uh, the health of their, their moral code, right? I think a lot of people who are religious have this in, in pretty, like, healthy amounts, right? Like, uh, there's certain things I will do. There's other things I will do. But having your own personal 5, 10, 15 commandments for your life, like, like the, the other thing that Craig, I heard about from him, right? It was like the Kekich credos or something like that. Yeah. And those, yeah. Are, those are a really good example of, of like frame. I mean, there's just so many of them. How the hell are you going to remember them all? But like you take a couple of them that really matter. And I bet you if you, if you looked at them, you'd find that there are common moral codes, essentially. You know, there's like three that probably branch to the 90 or whatever credos he's got. Those higher level rules all become strong when you have something deeper. And I think the, the thing about those New Year's resolutions is always that you know, you're thinking of them at the start of the new year anyway. So like you're trying on some new clothes, you're just trying on a new frame and it's naturally going to be incredibly weak to begin with. Yeah. And you know, the more rooted in something bigger could be like, you know, like if you believe for instance, that meat was something that's bad for you or that, you know, unhealthy for whatever reason. And then you, you know, you really started to spend time meditating on how bad it was for animals and all of that. You started to, you went to some slaughterhouses and saw it done it would build this sort of intellectual and emotional underpinning that would make you be like, you know, I don't want any part of that. I don't want anything to do with that. You go the Richard Gere route and you go full Buddhist or something, you know, like I'm not eating meat. Yeah. Well, most people read one Huffington Post article, declare themselves a vegetarian and two weeks later, they're having a bacon, egg and cheese sandwich. Exactly. And then a month later, they'll be vegan because that's the trend of the day. And then they'll start, you know, they'll become a yoga teacher and then they'll uh, become a stoic because those are the popular trends. One way to measure a frame is like, what have they sacrificed to take that position? If your position costs you nothing, your position is not particularly strong. You know, like, I mean, half the battle is figuring out what's the price you're willing to pay and paying it. And if you've paid it, your frame is quite strong. That's right. Because people like to keep their options open, you know, and they feel like it's enhanced their freedom. And I think, you know, you and I not long ago had a, a conversation about uh, uh, the new wave of relationships, the polyamorous the new thing, you know, the hot new thing, all the kids are doing it, you know, and we talked about it. I think we both share the, ba- the same perspective on it, which is that like, it's just an awful, awful mistake, just unbelievably bad. It's no way one in a disaster. I know one person who's gone on for a long time without disaster. One, there's a fuse on it. You just don't know when the fuse is going to blow. And I think ultimately, but this goes to mostly in my mind to the sacrifice standpoint, like you honor relationship by foregoing others as part of the relationship. Yep. honoring things is where the magic in life comes from. So like that's part of the you know, virtue ethic. So I see value in it anyway. But I mean, I think that if you you keep your options open and you're like, yeah, I mean, I'm committed. She's my girlfriend. But, you know, we'll, we'll just play it by ear. Then I think all you do is you diminish the value of that relationship. You basically make the thing, the whole relationship, your point of view about it, but also your partner's very fragile because your commitment to it isn't there. You know, you're, the, what you're willing to give up isn't there. Yeah, no, exactly. I mean, I think in a lot of ways, we're defined by the things that we sacrifice, not the things we get, not the things we earn, not the things that are given to us, but the things that we sacrifice. Yeah, it's a wisdom of the sands. Yeah. Well, yeah, and it's a long, long tradition. I mean, like when I was growing up, right, we were Eastern Orthodox, we were Greek Orthodox. I never ate meat on Fridays 
until I was like 18 in college and forgot, right? Small thing, but it was just like, you gave up meat for one day, which is like nothing. But still, it is a thing that, that unites people in this shared sense of sacrifice and the shared sense of like, it's a fast, right? And like, there's, there's a reason why literally every longstanding religious tradition has fasts, right? Like there's something in that. What it reinforces the larger frame of the moral philosophy of the religion. Mm-hmm. The sacrifices you make to it that seem maybe trivial, like one you skip, you know, we meet on one day a week or whatever that is. I, like, is it one day a week? And then during Lent, but all year round. So like every week you're reminded of a sacrifice you're making that basically helps strengthen the foundation of the other ideas around the philosophy, the moral philosophy of religion. Yeah. Ten commandments that nobody is like, you know, you're not going to worship false idols. You can't be polyamorous in your faith. Hey, I know you really wanted to worship that pagan river god, you know, so that the floods came at the right level, but sorry, you're stuck with me. You're stuck with Yahweh. Good luck. Yeah. Or you're not. You know, if you can put yourself in a position, which is uh, this is a sort of an interesting thought. It's like, could one strengthen their frame by purposefully sacrificing things in advance of when that frame is necessary? Perhaps. It does seem to be, as we're talking about it, the mental and physical energy devoted to devoted to something in and of itself seems to strengthen it, whether it be the prep in advance of a sales call. It works both ways, though. City band getting in your own head and being like, this thing sucks. This is terrible. I'm never going to be able to sell it. Our competition is way too strong. It's not just the ritual. It has to be the right ritual. Yeah. You know, you can really basically give yourself a bulletproof frame that's the wrong direction, you know, by, by doing rituals that diminish it or give you a different frame, right? Because it's a frame that I have this piece of thing that I'm selling. And I hope they don't see it. I'm just going to try and, you know, hopefully... I'm a shuck and jive. Exactly, yeah. Would it be fair to say that your life is at its root fundamentally defined by the frames that you walk around with or don't walk around with? I'd say the, the things you get or don't get are very much defined by the frames you walk around with and the ones you don't. But I don't think it's a crazy leap. So we're working on this basic idea that's sort of related, but not uh, exactly this, that is that... um you know, people encounter things that they are unsuccessful with. Fundamentally, it's like a, people have a map of the way a situation works. People who are like fixed pie people, you know, they believe that this is this big and the way that I get more is by winning. Okay, so that's like one way and imagine, you imagine that a certain scenario works. So it's how does the world work? And then how do I successfully interact in it? Then? Where do I fit in that? So if, if I believe it's a fixed pie game, then I need to bolster my negotiating strategies to be able and understand, have an information advantage or something like that so that I can win this fixed pie game. Yeah. Right. I don't have the right words for it yet, but I think like it, there's the map and the strategy, something like that, you know? So you have the map and the strategy where people don't get what they want to get out of whatever situation they're in. It's because one of those is wrong, sometimes both, but usually just one of them, you know, they're just a basic assumption they're making, you know, in terms of the way that what the map is, you know, or they're using the wrong strategy. In a way, I guess that is this probably the same thing as frame in a way, but I don't know. I think, you know, it depends on what you're doing, right? So like if I'm a colonel who's looking at the president of this third world country and I'm thinking about thinking about taking it, right? It's a hell of a lot better for my success in that endeavor to have a relatively fixed mindset because I'm going to take something. Well, recognizing that it's takeable, first of all. Yeah. That's the map. That's what I'm thinking of, or the terrain, you might consider that. That's the terrain. 
Yeah. And then how I be successful and how do I need to behave in order to win in that scenario? Yeah. And if the president and or dictator would say president, if you're just listening, we're saying president with air quotes, you know, being a really valuable person for that president and helping them out and doing all this stuff, that's probably not going to get you what you want, actually. Right. In that scenario, yeah. And that's an area, right? The basic um, sort of Western Silicon Valley notion of I'm just going to try and create value. You know, I'm going to be free with my ideas. I'm going to offer help and assistance. I'm going to make connections. Yeah. That probably might not be the right strategy for that terrain. Yeah. Look, if your goal is to become the CEO of a hundred year old publicly traded company, the fixed mindset is going to get you there more so than the expansive one. It's a political environment. Yeah. How you're perceived is just is, is at least equally weighed with, you know, what specifically you do. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But then in other environments, that is a strategy for total failure. And those are the more interesting environments. I mean, unless you're like into coups. And I'm just reasonably like fixed pie versus like unlimited pie is like one possible paradigm, you know, that one could have about the way that one achieves the way that things work. So I think it just applies to all things. And like, you know, what you assume about the way that the world works and the way that other people are interacting with the world, then the way you understand that terrain, you adopt a map for how you can successfully interact with that terrain. And when one of those is wrong, you end up just beating yourself into the wall, you know, your head in the wall. And ultimately, I think it can lead to despair. But my point is, I wonder if the the map and the, the terrain and the strategy, it's like if you have high confidence in those two things because you have enough intellectual underpinning that those things are true, then that's when your frame is really, it can't break it. The world needs to break in order for your frame to break. Yeah. So you have the map or territory strategy, right? And then the approach. I'm thinking of the strategy as approach. Yeah. It's interesting because like there's, there's a lot of little ones that I think are, are sort of illustrative of this. So, so like if you tell yourself before you go into a meeting that everybody there actually loves you. They think you're awesome. You're going to behave in a way that's totally different and vastly more effective, right? Than if you go in being like, okay, let's figure out who likes me and who doesn't. You just assume everyone does. They just have different ways of expressing it. That is a super effective strategy for social situations. In fact, it's sick, but like pretending or acting overly familiar with people will end up bringing them closer to you faster. Exactly. Because it'll mess with their own thinking. They'll be like, I guess we're closer friends than I thought. You can become friends with people who basically aren't your friends because they're friend. They're so friendly to you that it feels like, well, clearly we're friends. I guess I just didn't realize it. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's true. Essentially, it works. Yeah, it doesn't make any sense. But there's tons of things like that. Right. And so if you're trying to influence, if you're walking into a room, we're trying to persuade a group of people you can look at them as people that are, you know, have an oppositional view of you already, and you need to somehow like give the information in just the right way so that you can convince them, you can lure them in or whatever to your point of view. But, I mean, that might be a better strategy if you believe that they're against you fundamentally. But if you believe that they're on your side and the last thing they want to see happen is you not be successful in the meeting, then you're going to approach it fundamentally differently and it will work better. So I think that's a great example. Like it's the matching of those two things and they, of course, affect one another, but the matching of those two things. I mean, but you imagine if you're going into a interrogation, exactly, and you assume, you know, I've never been interviewed by the FBI, but like what they did to Flynn, you know, it's just a conversation. We're just talking. No need for a lawyer here. You know, it's fine. Oh, we're all friends here. Oh, no, well, that's yeah, that's a scenario, and the 
Yeah, his strategy did not work in that terrain. Exactly. And then there are certain points where like the table must be broken. You should explain what that means. What, what do you mean by that? Sometimes you're, you're at a position where you know the person sitting across the table from you in some fashion, you can't get them to agree with you through charm or persuasion or reason even. And thus, the only option aside from walking away, and this is a strategy for when you can't walk away, is you have to break the table and just say, okay, well, then let's just blow this entire thing up. We're going to burn it all to the ground. Sometimes they're like, cool, let's do that. And then you have your answer. But most of the time, they're like, whoa, like, let's not... Let's not go all the way. So, so like you, you can't just adopt this posture of like, everybody's my friend. You can at first, but you can go down some road. Like if you're not willing to punish, then your friendship is meaningless. Being in your good graces doesn't mean anything because everyone's in your good graces always. And so breaking the table is part of that. I think of breaking the table is it's like um, people are stuck in a rut frame. It's no longer working. The continuation of every interaction you have is only entrenching positions. It basically gets people to think about things. You're fundamentally changing the conversation, maybe from going from a, the micro to the macro, you know, or going from the arbitrary to the real world. You're altering the focus of the conversation. And so you make it possible for everybody to continue on with this sort of refresh mindset in good faith toward working toward an understanding together, you know? Certainly as a management tool, it's something that's really important because sometimes the conversation gets, you reach a point in the conversation where the only way forward causes damage to all parties. As you step closer, you're basically both walking toward a cliff. And the only way to do it is to get everyone to do a 180 and look the other way. And then and realize you're on the same side anyway, and you can start walking back together. So you have to, you have to sort of orchestrate this flipping the script completely on things to get people to see it, to get everyone to talking about something else or looking at a different from a totally different point of view. Yeah. I have one example of breaking the table that is, meh, I don't really talk to the guy anymore. But it was basically, it was, it was a few years ago and it was like, it was in LA, this guy was doing film financing, right? And had a meeting with him to see if there's something we could do together. And like you go in and he did all the classic Hollywood bullshit. Right. So like kept me waiting in the office for like 15, 20 minutes. Like, you know, he wasn't busy, you know, all that stuff. And you go into his office. Right. And his desk is at one height. And then all the chairs in the office are like little school chairs that are about six inches below. So he's like looking down at you. And so he clearly values this. Right. This sense of power, this sense of everything else. And so I'm sitting there. I was like, OK, well, like, we'll see. See how this goes. And everything I'm saying is wrong. You know, like, I don't know what I'm talking about. And I was like, you know, the only thing that can potentially salvage this, at least my dignity at the very least. Which is worth a lot. Which is worth something, you know? And um, so I was like, okay, none of this is working. So I got up and just sat on his desk and came up with an excuse. Be like, okay, let me show you our website. And I come over and sit on his desk. And like lean around to look at his screen. I'm like, okay, this is what, you know, you're, I'm, I'm like playing with his monitor. Like, give me your mouse. He managed the situation to basically, to be this, I'm right, you're wrong. You're going to listen. This is going to be the deal I want. Yeah. But uh, physically, I'm just going to show you that your entire kingdom means nothing to me. You know, I'm leaning on his desk, moving. Oh, like, okay, I got to move this keyboard. I'm like touching all his shit. 
And then he became pliable. We ended up talking for another hour and a half. It's a great example because a lot of times when you think of like uh, breaking the table, it feels like it's an extreme, like dropping a nuke into the relationship or something. It's not. It's altering. Like he's stuck in his frame where it's like, this is a drill. He does it all day long with different people. They, they come in, they pitch him on stuff. He challenges them. He gets in his, it's a, it's a strategy, right? That he uses for that terrain. But you could see you were at a total impasse and that there was, there was literally no productive way to move forward. Yep. So at that point, you look at it potentially as a Hail Mary, which would, could end up losing everything, you know, losing a potential deal that might, may or may not be yep. there anyway. But really, what I think where people get stuck in these places and they don't realize that the only chance of a productive way forward is something like that. Like they delude themselves into thinking that they're getting closer to a deal by becoming more compliant with this other person's frame, but you become less and less and less able to maneuver. And you have to shift it. So that's a, I think that's a great example of it. And the thing is, like, if you're going to break the table, depending on the circumstances, ideally, call it a pattern interrupt. The best pattern interrupts are done, in my experience, where they don't know that you're doing a pattern interrupt. So you have some excuse, and then suddenly you, you have some plausible deniability, right? It's like, I needed to show him something on his computer, and I didn't have my computer with me. Like, if I just went over and sat on his desk, I mean, that meeting could have gone a totally different way, right? But it's like you have an excuse, but then you use that excuse to basically erode his frame. Right. Now you're in my world, and in my world, I sit and stand where the fuck I want. Right. We're both adults, and we're going to talk to each other like we're peers or equals in some other way. Yeah. A pattern interrupt is a good way to think of it. And um, the thing is, you just have to be able to recognize when somebody's, like in this guy's scenario, just going back to the frame thing, his frame, because of his uninformed state, he was in a specific pattern. He, he, he organized every meeting in this way. And so he had this point of view on stuff. And when you walked on the door, he put you in a box immediately, right? Yep. So, and he, so he's just using that. And the only way to, to alter his frame was for him to recognize that you weren't in what, you were not what he thought you were. Sometimes you do that by being really way more friendly with someone. Sometimes you, you, can, you can achieve it by being disinterested. Sometimes you can be, you be in it by, you know, maybe you bring up a mutual connection you have that's a friend that sort of uh, then goes, okay, well, you're one of us then. You're not one of those people. Okay, I get it, you know? So there's lots of ways to do it. But if you recognize it, you have to recognize that cliff that you're, you know, you're walking toward with somebody because, you know, their own point of view on the world or yours is so fixed, you know, in that moment that it makes it impossible for you guys to work together because there's at root a misunderstanding of perspectives, you know? Pattern interrupt is a great way around that. In any interaction, right? Like in every moment, someone's frame is getting stronger and someone's frame is getting weaker. And it's sort of insidious. It's like an erosion, right? And so the only way you stop that is like you can't just like stand there and just keep shoveling the sand back into your sandbox. You have to like, we're not actually even in a sandbox. We're on a tennis court, right? And like whatever it is, right? Because in those sort of inflection points, like in those moments when you do something like that, then it's like, you know, causes like a, a reset. Right. And I, and the thing is, is you know, when you talk about like it's an erosion of a frame, somebody's frame is getting stronger, someone's getting weaker. This is not a zero sum thing. If you're getting dominated because somebody has, is managing the circumstances to such a degree like this guy was, you know, yours is being dominated and he is unable to see you because of his you know, his frame, he can't see even see you, then 
you know, the thought is that you should just be more polite. You know, you want to be more compliant, that this is a situation where you should just show some respect or whatever, you know, and I think those things don't work very well at all because what happens is they end up, they end up never actually even seeing you. They end up not noticing you were there and you have no impact on them at all. And like, there are some opportunities that you have when you meet people, you have the opportunity to like in a, in a sale to close a deal, right? Through uh, really persuading them in that way. And others, you are simply persuading someone that you are someone. That's it. You know what I mean? And then that can lead to all, some of the best relationships I have. They come with that because I see someone as, and that's an interesting person. They have a, as Mark Forrest says, a point of view, a very clear point of view on stuff. And it's, if they see me in that same way, the relationship could evolve to just about anything you can imagine. But if it doesn't, then neither of you get the opportunity. Yeah, exactly. So everyone loses. So the whole thing is you want to be seen. And if you want to influence and not be subject to the whims and influence of others, then you have to have a strong point of view, a strong frame. And that frame is key for being strong is not false bravado. Although it does take maintenance that sometimes could even feel like false, whatever, you know, the preparation, you know, for a meeting. Sometimes it really matters if you put on a sports coat. I'm a teacher guy, you're a teacher guy. But there's sometimes you make it too easy for someone to put you in a box if you're wearing a certain thing. And sometimes wearing a t-shirt is the right thing because it keeps them from putting you in the box. You know, you want to be seen. So you want to eliminate the things that are going to make it hard for them to see you. It's the ideas and your point of view fundamentally that are going to make people be impressed by you and perhaps influenced by you over anything else. It is true. All right. Anything else you want to add to the frame conversation? I think that was a good way to end it. All right. Thanks. You've been listening to the Smith Sense Podcast. Thank you for joining us. If you'd like to read more about Matt's thoughts on this topic and others, please visit his blog at smithsense.com, where you can also read the show notes, leave questions, and join the discussion. If you like what you've been hearing, please give us a rating on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts, and sharing it with friends would go a long way. A quick thank you to Russ Rizzo for the show notes, to our engineer, Jason Sanderson, and to the wonderful Zoe Keating for the use of her beautiful music. I'm Anthony Bruno, and we've been sharing time with Matt Smith. Have a good week.